0: After working with Cuba's elite boxing team for a decade, Bryn Butler started to ask
1: questions, and it got him banned from the island. If these athletes are an example of all the successes of the revolution when they stay, what does it say about the state of the revolution when they leave? Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we delve into the contradictions of Cuba as it
0: sees a flood of American tourism looming on the horizon. Journalist Gary Rivlin investigates how much New Orleans has changed 10 years after Hurricane Katrina. What's improved? and
2: what still remains to be done, and what has America learned from it. I mean, the truth is, folks back when knew what they were doing. And so the first parts of New Orleans that were inhabited, the French Quarter, it was the highest ground. And in Ireland, they're still arguing about the legacy
0: of the revolutionary leader, Michael Collins.
3: Now, when Collins signed that treaty, he turned to his colleagues and he said, something along the lines of, lads, I have just signed my own death warrant. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves.
0: One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. As a sports journalist, Bryn Jonathan Butler gained access to a site of Cuba few others ever get to experience. He worked with Cuba's elite Olympic boxing team for the better part of a decade and still managed to avoid getting one of those 3 a.m. knocks on the door that means you're getting a surprise flight home. But later, something he brought up in a documentary he made about a Cuban boxing hero got him banned from returning to Cuba. Bryn's extraordinary tales from Havana are coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Reporter Gary Rivlin has been investigating New Orleans for the past 10 years. He tells us how the city's tourism infrastructure is looking better than ever, while outlying areas still have a long way to recover from the flooding that followed Hurricane Katrina. Go into almost any Irish pub and look on the wall behind the bar. You're likely to see a photo of John F. Kennedy and one of Michael Collins. Collins was a leader of Ireland's struggle for independence from Britain back in 1916. A few years later, he was assassinated during the Irish Civil War on August 22, 1922. Just what happened is still a matter of debate in Ireland. Some Irish consider Michael Collins a national hero. Others don't, but they all know that he personifies the struggle behind the formation of today's Republic of Ireland. It's a legacy that our friends Stephen McPhillamy and Barry Maloney are here to tell us about now on Travel with Rick Steves. Stephen, Barry, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Rick. Stephen, with that introduction about Michael Collins, that's kind of the American romantic look at Michael Collins. Did I nail it, or is that a little romanticized?
3: I think you nailed it. He's probably the biggest figure in Irish history in the 20th century, mm-hmm. along with Eamon de Valera. But there would be a fair amount of people who aren't really on Collins's side, even in the nationalist community. He's a very divisive figure. The
0: sad story about Ireland's, where
3: you, you fought so heroically so long for independence from Britain... And then right away, you broke into civil war, fighting about what you're going to do with your independence. Yeah, we hit that self-destruct button. I think in fairness, though, from all my research and readings, that Collins really wanted to avert that civil war, I think it really saddened him that we fought each other then after we had successfully, not yeah. defeated Britain, but successfully fought them to a standstill. So I don't think he would have wanted that civil war and maybe tried to avert it, but at the same time, he fought the civil war as leader of the he's, Free he's, State Army. He was a combatant. Barry, why is
0: Michael Collins so near and dear to Irish hearts? What did he do, first of all?
4: Well, first he he negotiated separation from United Kingdom rule of Ireland. He negotiated what eventually became the Republic of Ireland. He negotiated that treaty. Okay. And he fought to get to that point of negotiation. Did
0: he inspire the Irish people to stand up against great odds?
4: Yeah, definitely, yeah. But there's two sides. He was a guerrilla fighter. He was a Mm -hmm. tactician. He led assassination squads. Mm -hmm. of assassinating British. So you could
0: call him a terrorist.
4: Yeah, terrorist. You could draw parallels. He was the most wanted man in Ireland at one stage. He disguised himself as a nun, Mm -hmm. occasionally to avoid capture. And today he is a hero to the Irish, but it's a delicate subject. And the easiest way to describe that is, even though we became independent recently in our history, there is no Irish 4th of July. We have no date of celebrating our independence. You don't? No.
0: Stephen McPhillamy, give me a little context for people who know there's a struggle between Ireland and Britain, but just in a nutshell, tell us
3: about the background of the British occupation, the War of Independence, and then the civil war that followed. Right, so England conquers in the 1600s and has its domination of Ireland then, and there's a series of rebellions pretty much every generation from then on, all of them unsuccessful. In 1916, we have a rebellion that is also a failure from a military point of view, but the British execute the leaders quite quickly afterwards and public sympathy rises in favour of the rebels and and Michael Collins was one of those young rebels. He was in the general post office in Dublin in 1916 and I think in that post office he probably thought to himself, well if we ever survive this next time we'll fight again but we won't have uniforms on in the middle of Dublin with big grand flags and banners and next time we'll fight a guerrilla war we'll take the war out to the countryside and onto the streets and Will you know? Maybe bow the head to the enemy during the day, but we'll fight them at night. Okay. And uh, he then is regarded as one of the fathers of modern guerrilla warfare. I mean, in fairness to Collins, as a military operator, like he was top class. So he was uh, brilliant as a as a guerrilla yeah, commander. A brilliant as a fighter and a commander, and a, as a tactician and extremely well organized. He had worked in the British civil service. You see, he went off and worked in London and. The British Civil Service controlled an empire, so Collins would have picked up a lot of organizational skills there, ironically, that he would use against that empire Mm. on his return home. He was a member of a secretive group called the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and they're also known as the Fenians. Uh So he was a a very genuine revolutionary devoted to the cause of overthrowing British rule by violent methods if necessary. And Barry, how did uh, Michael Collins eventually die?
4: As soon as we got independence, we began to fight ourselves in a civil war. One side wanted a free Republic of Ireland. The other side wanted to keep fighting for more, more territory Mm and a a complete island separation. And in the midst of that civil war in 1922, he was going out to West Cork, down near where he was born, actually. And in an ambush, he was killed. He then became a mythical figure,
3: almost like our JFK
0: cut down in his prime. He was only, what, early 30s? 32
3: 32 years old. And ironically, he was the only person killed in the ambush. There's so many ironies about it because Collins had mastered modern guerrilla warfare and he had taught IRA men, Irish Republican Army men, how to set up ambushes in the countryside to fight the British Army. And then he gets killed by the IRA in an ambush in the countryside. By his own tactics. By his own (laughs) tactics, Oh, yeah. uh, he was the only one killed he was dressed in the uniform of the new Irish Free State army dressed as a as a general there are allegations locally that he had a big night the night before there had been a party and he may have been there's allegations that he may have been still drunk there are allegations that he was definitely hung over mm-hmm. because instead of getting his head down when the firing started instead of getting down and taking cover he's supposed to have jumped up and started returning fire and mm-hmm. he got hit in the temple then with a single shot
0: We're learning about the legendary Irish revolutionary leader Michael Collins right now on Travel with Rick Steves with our guests Stephen McPhillamy and Barry Maloney. Michael Collins was a leading figure of the Irish Free State, and as we just heard, he was killed on August 22, 1922, by Irish Republican forces who opposed the treaty that he negotiated with the British. Stephen, can you explain for us why Michael Collins, such a great Irishman, was killed by a fellow Irishman, and why some Irish citizens still don't consider him to be a national hero?
3: Two answers to that. In the Republic of Ireland today, we have two big political parties, Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, who are political rivals, and Fianna Gael was Michael Collins' party, if you like. And during the summer, I had some tour members down in the town of Kinsale, where Barry's from and they had come back from a day trip to see Michael Collins' sites. Their tour guide had been a -a Fianna Gaeler, a Fianna Gael man. He would have been pro-Collins. So when they came back, they were boasting away about the great things they'd seen about Collins and that they had been to his birth site and they'd been to this, where he went to school. And the pub owner was a Fianna Foyle man. He said, sure, you should have come with me. I could have showed you where we shot him. Whoa, so there are people that (laughs) don't think he was the... the, the He had a twinkle in his eye and a smile, but it was also... A bit of a double entendre there, you know. They, so he was happy to see him gone. And then up the north, in the Northern Irish Nationalist community, and the Catholic community, many people would, they'd have some admiration for Collins, but there's quite a lot who don't like him at all because as far as they're concerned, he abandoned them. He was the Nationalist leader. He went to London and he signed a treaty which handed the six counties of Northern Ireland over to remain with the UK. Oh, and if you're a Catholic stuck in the north, you could blame Michael Collins for agreeing
0: to partition Ireland, basically.
3: Yeah, because that's essentially what he did. Now, Uh when Collins signed that treaty, he turned to his colleagues and he said, something along the lines of, lads, I have just signed my own death warrant. He knew. And, you know, shortly thereafter, he was dead. Some years ago, you know, History Ireland magazine ran a competition where you had to sum up Irish history in seven words. His winning entry was about the ambush of Michael Collins because he's supposed to have been drunk. The winning entry was... Collins arrived half shot, departed fully shot. Summing up Irish history and good Irish wit.
0: Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Barry Maloney and Stephen McPhillamy are filling us in on the legacy of what I guess you could call one of Ireland's founding fathers, Michael Collins, and the reasons why many, but not all Irishmen, consider him to be a revolutionary hero in the fight for independence from Britain. Barry, when you think about sightseeing, give yep. me uh, three or four sites that somebody might see that gives them a sense of the heroics that earned independence for Ireland from Britain back a uh, hundred years ago.
4: Sure. A few sites connect with Michael Collins. First start where he was born in Clonakilty, West Cork. And as you're down there, you can visit the site where he was assassinated, Bale and Blaw, just a few miles out the road. Mm-hmm. Then up closer to Dublin, you can visit, of course, where he's buried, Glasnevin Cemetery. Mm-hmm. You can do a fascinating guided tour of the cemetery, which covers a lot of famous Irish people, and also visit in Dublin the GPO, where the 1916 Rising took place, and Kilmainham Jail, mm-hmm. where a lot of the Irish rebels were imprisoned. So the the General Post Office was just a heroic
0: sort of last stand or something last for stand. these heroes. You can and still the,
3: see the bullet holes. And Stephen Collins's last uh, resting place, or before he was buried, his body lay in state in uh, City Hall in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And there are some very fantastic photographs around of that era. And it was our first big state funeral Mm. after independence. Hundreds of thousands attended and Collins' body was drawn by the new Free State Army in full military uniform on the back of a a gun carriage. So uh, it was a big military, a big public spectacle. Big deal for the new country of Ireland. And one of the most moving
0: experiences for me in Ireland was going to Kilmainham Jail. And reading the letters of the guys who were uh, going to be shot the next morning and the letters to their loved ones. Uh, and they could have, some of them could have saved their lives if they just had, uh, you know, stood down. But they would not, they, they wished they had more than one life to give for their country. Just one quick word about Kilmainham Jail. How, how can we appreciate Kilmainham Jail, Stephen?
3: Well, in some ways Kilmainham Jail is like Ireland's Alamo, if you like, or it's just mm-hmm. such a national shrine. I think every Muslim must go to Mecca once in his life, but every tourist to Ireland must go to Kilmainham Jail. I agree. Kilmainham
0: Jail is in Dublin. It's very easy to see in your list of top sites in Dublin, and uh, I would say that's a must for anybody that wants to gain an appreciation of the courage and the valour of these uh, heroes that helped Ireland establish its independence. Barry Maloney and Stephen McPhillamy, thanks so much for a, a little better appreciation of somebody who's so important in Irish history.
4: Thanks, Rick. Cheers,
0: Rick.
3: Red, white,
2: and blue Green, white, and gold
0: We'll look at how much New Orleans has changed ten years after the flooding that followed Hurricane Katrina coming up in just a bit. Up next, the animosity between the United States and Cuba plays out in some curious ways. Bryn Jonathan Butler spent a decade in Cuba training with its elite boxers and following the trail of author Ernest Hemingway we explore sides of Cuba that few travelers ever get to experience. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. journalist Bryn Jonathan Butler sees the conflict between the United States and Cuba as a kind of bizarre soap opera and love affair between the two countries. Ten years of working with Cuba's top boxers and trainers gave him access to everyday life in Cuba in a way few outsiders will ever experience. Bryn provides a lot of punchy detail about his encounters in Cuba in his highly entertaining memoir called The Domino Diaries, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves welcome. Oh, my pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So your book, The Domino Diaries, the subtitle is My Decade, Boxing with Olympic Champions and Chasing Hemingway's Ghost in the Last Days of Castro's Cuba. You spent 10 years there. First of all, what brought you to Cuba, and why the focus on boxing and
1: Hemingway? I was an amateur boxer, and the first book I ever read, the first novel, was The Old Man in the Sea, who I found out was still alive in the small town that Hemingway described in his little book. So my intention was to see if I could track down this 103-year-old Gregorio Fuentes and also if I could persuade some of the Olympic community in Cuba to hire them to give me private lessons. And you wrote about it vividly. Were you taking notes as you were having all of
0: this, intending to write this book, or, or did you write this from, just from your memory after having the experience?
1: I definitely kept journals um, and did keep a lot of notes. I mean, it's pretty surreal, I think, for most people who arrive in Cuba from day one. You anticipate, you know, having a lot of preconceived notions about what you're going to encounter. And it turns out nothing has prepared you for what you encounter. And yet Cubans seem singularly equipped to understand where you're coming from. And that's a very disconcerting experience. How so? How would they understand where you're coming? I mean, how did you observe that? There's a an element to traveling to Cuba where it's kind of like visiting a safe crisis. The Cubans obviously have famously a few things that are looked after with health care and with education with a roof over their heads. There's no homeless people in Havana, unlike where I'm living now in Manhattan. However, they do live in relative squalor with a neurosurgeon making $20 a month, or if you're an Olympic athlete or a baseball player who could be making $15 million a year, you're making the same amount of money as somebody selling peanuts on a street corner. Hmm.
0: That's the whole communist thing. In in Russia, they measured your worth by what your hands produced, not what your brain produced, and it put workers and surgeons on an even pay scale.
1: And uh, that's a joke over there that the great successes of the revolution are athletics, healthcare, education, and what's failed is breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Boy, those are intimate details you get when you travel. Now, I want to get to the boxing in a minute, but
0: I'm fascinated. You actually met the man who inspired Hemingway to write The Old Man in the Sea. He was 103 years old. You tracked him down. What was that like?
1: It was absolutely incredible. A really remarkable person, still living in the same house where he'd been for decades, and he was available to talk to foreigners for, I think it was 10 or $15 for about 20 minutes, hmm. still smoking a cigar, refusing to wear glasses, lived maybe five minutes' walk from where the old man in the sea was leaving the beach to go out chasing Marlin. Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinary person. Could you see why Hemingway was inspired by him? Absolutely. Yeah, very moving, humble fascinating person who really embodied a lot of the character you know there was a, a universality to who he was mm. with cubans i met a, a huge generosity of spirit brave humble and decent when did that book come out i believe in 1951 or that's 52? what i would guess the early 50s so that was 60
0: years later he was an old man 60 years ago and you still talk to him
1: You just couldn't believe you knock on a door and there he is answering it. And there's the fishing rod that Hemingway used uh, (laughs) hanging on the wall. And um, I think Hemingway has been really reduced in the ensuing decades after his suicide to this sort of glib, hairy-chested caricature. And I was much more interested in why America's most famous writer, if not the world's most famous living writer, certainly... Why would he spend the last 20 years of his life in Cuba and call himself a Cuban and be so embraced by the Cuban people? There are marinas named after him. The hotel room where he wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls is a place you can visit. And his house has been turned into a museum where all his books remain, thousands of volumes. Bryn Jonathan Butler takes us beyond the tourist zones and into
0: the grittier side of Cuba in his book called The Domino Diaries. With his Canadian passport, Bryn spent the better part of a decade in Cuba, gaining the confidence of the country's Olympic boxing elites. He's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share what he found living in Havana. Let's move into this whole boxing thing. I always think of Cuba as the land of baseball players and everybody's playing pickup baseball on vacant lots and so on. What attracted you to Cuba, though, was the passion they have for boxing. But
1: from reading through your
0: book, clearly boxing is a different culture in Cuba than in the United States. Tell us about that.
1: I think the easiest way to contextualize boxing in Cuba, and and even baseball, is to look at how the United States used somebody like Bobby Fischer to fight the Cold War over a chessboard when he fought Boris Spatsky in 1972 at the World Chess Championships. You know, the Olympics were created so that we didn't have to go to war. We could have competition. And I think Fidel Castro used his athletes as pawns in a symbolic war against the United States and the American system the Cuban Olympic team was far more successful in boxing than any other country on earth. And there was nothing more pleasurable to them than defeating Americans in the ring. Obviously, Mm. the United States is a much larger country with a lot more resources. And then the coup de grace for Castro was when his athletes were offered sometimes tens of millions of dollars to leave. And they would say, you know, we fight for something more than just money. We fight for our people and we fight for our principles. That was such an enigmatic idea. I mean, I come from Canada and the idea of wanting to stand up to the United States seemed preposterous as a kid where, you know, in Canada we were, we felt jipped not to get American media, not to get American TV channels, you know, that we had all this sort of state sponsored radio and television. That just really fascinated me to see if it was true and just to learn more about it. Oh, yeah, to go into the ring one-on-one
0: with an American boxer representing your country from their perspective probably as a David and a Goliath kind of thing. I can see how that would inspire them. Does this continue to this day? I mean, uh, I think you wrote there was 20,000 professional boxers that are still paid for by the government.
1: That's correct. Uh, And... Moreover, uh, there is over a billion dollars worth of human capital with the athletes on baseball fields and boxing rings across Cuba if they step foot anywhere but where they live. So it presents this really insidious human smuggling operation which is more active than ever. Um, Only about 1% of all the athletes since Castro banned professional sports in 1962 have left. So the vast majority have stayed, including the the highest profile athletes up until very recently. And I think that's where the, the first germ kind of infected me, that there was a real story to tell where these current day champions, who are about the same age as me, began to leave. Because when Fidel said, um, if these athletes are an example of all the successes of the revolution when they stay, I thought it was fair then to examine... What does it say about the state of the revolution when they leave? You know, this is so
0: fascinating because in our culture, it just almost seems right to go to the highest bidder. You know, whether you're a a sports figure or a business person or a politician or whatever, it's just the nature of the beast. You go to the highest bidder. And in Cuba, it's just definitively not that way. And you've got a chapter in your book called Chasing the American Dream from a Smuggler's Boat that kind of deals with the irony of four, or 500 years ago it was the slave trade between Cuba and America and now there's this temptation to have boxers and baseball players going back and forth but it's almost like we're not going to be bought out. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, I think one of the features with Cuba and the revolution is one way to frame it that people I've spoken with have, have suggested is it's A civil war fought across 90 miles between the million Cubans who left the island after the success of the revolution and those that remained. Mm. And I think whether you stay or you leave is such an insidious choice that it haunts you no matter what you do. And the other side of that with the smuggling operation and and those that have left on rafts or walked across minefields or swam in shark-infested waters is of all the people who've left, it's essentially created the largest graveyard on earth with the Florida Straits of all the people who didn't make it hmm. so one of the things i tried to explore in this memoir was the revolution was easiest to contextualize and distill for me using the prism of the broken family there were no boxers or or athletes or anybody who left that it didn't split their family down the middle with people who supported their reasons for leaving and those who insisted that they stay and, and be loyal because of what was before Fidel Castro. So it was very much not a homogenous thing, this really ugly, uh, I describe it as Cuba's answer to Sophie's choice. I never thought about that. What
0: a awkward position a boxer would be in. You could be a traitor to some and a hero to
1: others, depending on on how you play your career, right? That's absolutely right. And, and the complexion of the choice, uh, one of the things I sought to do in this memoir was to go back to the 1970s great champion, um, the best champion that they had, Teofilo Stevenson, the Cuban Muhammad Ali, offered $5 million in 1976 money to come over to the United States and fight Ali. And he said, what's a million dollars for the love of 8 million Cubans? So I have the last interview with him that I filmed uh, shortly before his death that he ever gave, and he insisted that I pay him in order for him to tell me then on camera. He wanted me to pay him off camera about how money meant nothing and he is, you know, living and going to die with the decision that he made and and also speaking against some of the boxers who've been leaving, that they're betraying their principles. And then I followed some of the people who left as well.
0: So those who stay for people who have chosen to stay would be considered heroes and those who leave
1: by people who chose to stay are traitors. That is the official position, but of course, whispered in the kitchens of houses across Cuba, is a lot more nuanced opinions Mm -hmm. and what i saw with the defection of the teofilo stevenson of my time in 2007 uh, a boxer named guillermo rigandiao who's just a year younger than i am was when he attempted defection it was of such importance to cuban society that fidel castro even though he'd stepped down from power the year before spoke out in the state newspaper and branded him a traitor Mm -hmm. and called him a judas Mm -hmm. and yet The majority of Cubans I spoke to were very sympathetic for his reasons. That being said, the decision to attempt and fail at defection divided his own parents where his father publicly disowned him and his mother was almost publicly, Mm. she was known to be very supportive of his reasons for leaving and she died shortly after he made it to Miami. Bryn Jonathan Butler is with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a sports writer
0: and the author of The Domino Diaries, published by Picador. Brin's memoir is packed with riveting stories about the decade he boxed with Olympic champions in Cuba and chased after Hemingway's ghost. You can also read Brin's interview with boxer Mike Tyson on his website. That's at brin-jonathanbutler.com. Brin, you were there for 10 years. Actually, you were sort of... uh, It was a cat and mouse a little bit with the government, wasn't it, because you were reporting on this, and you were trying to fit in and probably melt into the society... You wrote under a pseudonym, and uh, ultimately you were, you were kicked out of the country or banned from returning to, to Cuba. Give us an insight into that, please.
1: Well, I think when the focus of my work with both documentary and with the book turned to the most famous defection in boxing history since the Revolution, I sought out a lot of the, the people who'd written books or journalists who, who'd who worked in the United States and around the world studying Cuba and and had contacts over there with counterparts in journalism. And they put me in touch with people in Cuba. And the moment I got over there and they said, what is your focus? And I mentioned the name of Guillermo Rigondeau as using him as this prism into all the reasons why people stay and go, the universality of that choice to stay or go. They said, don't contact us, don't talk to us. If you see us in the street, ignore us. Nobody can go near this subject here on the island. And at that point, I was so far in debt shooting a documentary at Cuba and boxing is a hard sell and trying to do a sort of sociological study tends to alienate sports fans and then uh, it was just difficult. So I just racked up massive credit card debt and at that point there was no going back. So mm-hmm. I really accelerated what I was doing over there in terms of tracking down the biggest names that I could and that just tipped me off to authorities where I started to get mm-hmm. pursued and some of the people were under 24-hour state watch by the secret police and that sort of thing. So you never knew how close they were, and I was terrified of having footage confiscated or being arrested or being misconstrued, doing something that I wasn't. I talked to some of the youth as well to see what were their feelings in terms of the people who defected. Mm -hmm. But I was afraid that the authorities would assume that I was trying to coerce the youth to try and leave and help put them in touch with box, foreign boxing managers and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it became a very precarious setup, and uh, I had to move very quickly to sort of get, get what I could. So, Bryn, the, the documentary is Split Decision.
0: How can people see this?
1: Um, I'm putting it into festivals. It was just shown in New York recently. I'm hoping with the festivals that it will avail itself to get picked up mm-hmm. for wider distribution. Sounds fascinating.
0: Now, Bryn, just let's uh, wrap things up because we're basically out of time with with just a thought about Americans who are dreaming of going to Cuba. Do you see an increase in tourism and how is that going to impact Cuba? And what do you advise for Americans that have always dreamed about going to Cuba and think this is a good time?
1: Where the Bay of Pigs invasion failed, tourism will succeed in totally altering the landscape of Cuba. In some ways, it will be of benefit to the Cuban people, but it will be a very mixed blessing. Mm income inequality over there already sees medical doctors and lawyers working as cab drivers or just trying to get tourist dollars. I mean, dollars in Cuba are oxygen. That's, I think, how they view it. So I think with foreign investment and that kind of thing, I haven't heard a lot of Cubans asking what comes next. It betrays a kind of luxury of position for outsiders Mm. to say, What comes next? I don't want Starbucks to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Cubans are a lot more concerned about having plumbing that works or electricity or uh, reliable food. So a lot of people my age in their mid-30s and younger, I think, are moving much more towards seeing themselves as individuals, which is Mm -hmm. a big shift over previous decades. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes. I just, it will be a very mixed blessing.
0: You wrote that Cuba is dirty on every level, and that's a large part of its appeal. Uh, What did you mean by that, and is that threatened, do you think, by this new opening up?
1: Well, what I meant by that was that when Lawrence of Arabia was asked why the desert, he said, because it's clean. And I think for those of us who are drawn to Cuba, we would say because it's dirty, because it is complicated and it lives in the gray. And as I mentioned, when I first set foot there, I didn't understand where we have access to all this media and information that should inform us about what we're going to see why them with, you know, banning books and estate media and all of that control seem to think so critically about issues that we don't really. So, yeah, nothing really prepared me for what I saw. Mm. And that really interested me and made me question, why is that the case? Mm. Bryn
0: Jonathan Butler, author of The Domino Diaries. You are a keen observer and a great traveler. Thank you for sharing your experience in Cuba best wishes Bryn
1: oh it's a pleasure thank you
0: This week's Travel with Rick Steves webpages include links to Bryn's website, his book, The Domino Diaries, and a trailer for his documentary, Split Decision. You'll find that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. A media storm is gathering to mark the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. For the past 10 years, reporter Gary Rivlin has been following the fates of politicians and construction workers, the dispossessed and the newly arrived in New Orleans. He shares what he's learned about the recovery of greater New Orleans and takes your calls at 877-333-7425. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It was the costliest disaster in American history. Ten years ago, on August 29th, it's reported that at least one disc jockey dedicated the classic song, Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans, to Hurricane Katrina. But Katrina didn't miss New Orleans and the nearby Gulf Coast. Today, the legacy of the flooding that followed the hurricane still haunts the region. Gary Rivlin covered the aftermath of the disaster for the New York Times. Today. He works as an investigative reporter for the Nation Institute, and he's just released a book detailing his research into what's happening with New Orleans 10 years on. It's called Katrina After the Storm. Gary, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Reading through your book, it occurred to me New Orleans is not just any city. In your sort of experience, uh, an estimate, how is New Orleans unique in America, and how has that changed after Katrina?
2: It was a French city. It was a Spanish city. It was uh, the most active slave port in the 19th century. They actually had a large community of free African-Americans, free people of color, they were called. So it was a very cosmopolitan port city. Most music historians say that jazz was created there. There's a community called Treme. People might know it from the popular HBO series, but Treme is believed to be the oldest African-American community mm-hmm. in, in the country, and so there was kind of a, a richness, a difference in life there compared to the rest of the South, the rest of the country. Louisiana itself is under a different kind of law than the rest mm-hmm. of the country, so it's always been a, a different place with a different pace. Now let's say you
0: knew New Orleans really well in the year 2000, and then you went back today. How would it look and feel different, uh, both in a physical way with the infrastructure and so on, but also the psyche and and the social and racial fabric of the city.
2: If you're talking about outsiders, if you're talking about visitors, tourists going there, the truth is that New Orleans is in many ways better than ever. I mean, the advantage of having a flood that covered 80% of the city is that much of the place is new. It had to be rebuilt. The population is still 20% off its pre-Katrina numbers, but, you know, a lot of the historic places that were starting to crumble. The old theaters, they've been redone and look better than ever. So in some ways, New Orleans has gone over this amazing makeover. And from the tourist point of view, it's better than ever. But out in the communities, places that truthfully I had never even heard of until Katrina, Lakeview, New Orleans East, Gentilly, the Lower Ninth Ward, you know, just communities of regular folks in New Orleans, Many of them have been struggling. The Lower Ninth Ward, which became a symbol of New Orleans's plight after Katrina, it's 10 years, and yet it's one-third back. Mm. One-third the people are back. You can go blocks and see a house per block where there used to be a block full of homes. You know, that's a lower-income community, but you talk about Gentilly, a black middle-class community, New Orleans East, a black professional community, And, you know, they're 60, 70 percent back 10 years after the storm. So I call it the half of New Orleans miracle. Uh You know, it's a sparkling, beautiful city. It's just vibrant. Go there. It's wonderful. It's so much going on. It's so easy to have a good time, a rich experience. But get out in the communities and you see that there's still work that needs to be done.
0: Could a cynic say New Orleans is kind of like a microcosm of what's going on in the United States with... Things become incorporatized and sterilized and uniformized and the patina of age is gone and the beautiful photographs might be there, but the real character behind the scenes is kind of sold out or bought away.
2: There was a real worry in the months after the storm. I was, I was there for the first year, pretty much a resident of New Orleans for that, for the first uh-huh. eight months after the storm. And there was a real palpable worry about what everyone called the Disneyfication right. of, of New Orleans. Let's turn it into, you know, a theme park. The truth is, I, I don't think that's happened. I mean, I, I really do think it's it's kind of wonderfully decrepit in many hmm. ways. You know, crumbly streets and just old-fashioned so You still have places. that
0: patina of age, which really is the... Uh, there's something about it to me that's part of the character. You, you don't want it to be all freshly purchased and painted. It's got that reality, that pithiness.
2: Well, exactly, exactly. And, and one thing I should point out is that the 20% of the city that didn't flood was the old city. I mean, the truth is, folks back when... Mm-hmm. knew what they were doing. Ah. And so the first parts of New Orleans that were inhabited, the French Quarter, it was the highest ground.
0: Our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves is Gary Rivlin. He's just released a book that tells 10 years of stories about the recovery of New Orleans from the Hurricane Katrina disaster. The book is called Katrina After the Flood, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. Rich from Sheldon, Illinois, is on the line at 877 Rich, thanks for calling.
5: Well, thank you, Rick. Gary, it's nice to talk to you. I I was in uh, New Orleans the spring before uh, Katrina, and we visited Riverwalk, the quarter, the Garden District, had a great time. Took the trolley down St. Charles Avenue. I was wondering, is it safe to go back? Is the climate uh, good for tourists? Is the atmosphere back to somewhat what it was back in spring of 05, or... Is it still a little little shaky?
2: It's back to spring two thousand five. I might even argue it's better than two thousand five, but I'll remind you that in the spring of two thousand five, the one big criticism against New Orleans was its violence. Uh mm-hmm. you know, it's it's always had a high rate of homicide, a high rate of violent crime like Washington DC, like Detroit, like Oakland, California, like other cities around the country. And, you know, unfortunately, that has not gone away. But, you know, the thing about visiting New Orleans now that I think would strike anyone who was familiar with the city prior to Katrina is kind of like Seattle has become, Brooklyn, you know, these other cities that are just coursing with this young energy. There's an entrepreneurial spirit. Is New Orleans still as corrupt as it's always been? Well, there's been a lot of politicians who have Gone away, the The mayor at the time of Katrina, Ray Nagin, started serving his 10-year prison term in September. You know, the U.S. attorney might say, we've cleaned the place up. But, you know, that was a big problem as New Orleans was looking to rebuild because Washington, D.C. is saying like, okay, most of us are sympathetic with your cause here. You're using natural disaster in New Orleans, they would say, it was a man-made disaster because it was the failure of the levees. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't the hurricane, it was the flood mm-hmm. caused by the collapse of the levees hmm. that destroyed much of New Orleans. So, you know, Washington is feeling somewhat responsible. It's the mm-hmm. U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that created these levees. But can they trust New Orleans with this money? That was a big issue. In fact, uh, the biggest home recovery program the U.S. has ever created Road home they had to have so many checks and balances in it that it took a year or two for people to get money at a time people were desperate for rebuilding money and it really helped to stall the recovery it helped well, slow down well it can't
0: be perfect but in retrospect do people feel like it was handled reasonably well
2: yeah though the problem was there was a, a suit that was upheld by a, a judge accusing the state of creating a discriminatory program hmm. so road home made you whole. If your home was worth $250,000 and you got $150,000 from the insurance company, they would make up the $100,000. They would make Mm -hmm. make you whole up to $150,000. The problem is it was based on the assessed value of your home, Mm -hmm. and I think as most of us know, black communities the same home, the same Mm -hmm. 2,000 square foot home, would be assessed at less than it would be Mm -hmm. in the similar economic white community, Mm -hmm. and yet it still costs the same for sheetrock. It still costs the same for the roofer. And so the problem with Road Home was that there was what many considered a discriminatory element. It was upheld. The federal government, the state acknowledged the problem, but by the time they acknowledged the problem, almost all of the $10 billion was spent. Rich, thanks for your question. You're welcome. Okay, bye now.
0: Camille's calling from Walnut Creek in California. Camille, thanks for your call.
2: Thank you, Rick. Uh, Gary, I wanted to know in your research, how well has New Orleans been able to absorb the new cultures that were brought about by the influx of the post-Katrina workers? Right. So after Katrina, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Latinos came into the city. And, you know, at first there was a little bit of friction. The mayor, Ray Nagin, said at a public conference, he began his comments saying, I know what you're all thinking, there's too many Mexican workers here, which wasn't so. People were very appreciative that there were people willing to come and gut homes and do the necessary muck work that needed to be done. But, you know, that's some of the positive side of the New Orleans miracle that it's a more polyglot city, I think, today than it was prior to Katrina. There's always been something of a Vietnamese presence, but it's stronger now. There's more of a Latino presence in this Mm. city. The thing about New Orleans, it was the city where people were born and stayed. And post-Katrina, that's had to change. A lot of people never came back. And so there's been some tension over regentrification kind of issues, but for the most part, I I, I really do think New Orleans is a a, a richer city now.
5: That's good to hear because I'm from New Orleans, haven't lived
2: there in a while, and uh, family. So uh, I'm I'm glad I got your expert opinion.
0: Camille, thanks for your call.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye now. Gary Rivlin's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we reflect on the last 10 years in New Orleans after the tremendous damage that followed Hurricane Katrina. Gary's an investigative reporter for the Nation Institute, and he's the author of Katrina, After the Flood. His website is GaryRivlin.com, spelled R-I-V-L-I-N. Michael's calling in from Huntington Beach in California. Hi, Michael. Thanks for your call.
5: Hi, Rick. Hi, Gary. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've visited uh, New Orleans several times over the years, both pre- and post-Katrina. I was there a few months right after uh, Katrina. I was there most recently, last month, and One of the most disturbing aspects of the aftermath of Katrina is that the people of that city felt like they were treated as if they were insignificant and and did not matter, due in large part to the slow response, the slow emergency response from government in their hour of need. Are there concerns about it that they are treated as second-class citizens in this country?
2: I think where we see that the most are young people. Some people talk about the Katrina kids, kids who were 8, 10, 12 years old at the time of Katrina and saw that the U.S. government took four or five days to rescue 50,000 or so people. And, you know, the, the violence problem in New Orleans, some attribute to sort of a nihilism, uh, like, well, government didn't care about us, I don't care about anything myself. And so I really do think some of the echoes of that, of the perceived indifference, arguably simply the indifference in those first days, and you know the whole world seeing the, the suffering. Yeah, that does linger.
5: Yeah, despite it all, the people of New Orleans are some of the most genuinely friendly I've ever met in this country. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that.
2: Gary, when you think about
0: just the citizenry of New Orleans, is there a sense of those who were there before who stayed and rebuilt, and are, do they have a special respect, or is it that things just looked right at, into the future rather than remembering where they came from?
2: <laughs> well, it depends on which side of the equation you're at. It, you know, it kind of reminds me of California now. I mean, there's those who are the original people, the people who predate Katrina. And of course, they feel like they're wearing a badge. Right. We survive, we put up with the government, we put up with the ineffectualness. We picked up a shovel and rebuilt. S- yeah, exactly. But there's so many newcomers, tens and tens of thousands of People who were either inspired to go work in New Orleans and fell in love with the place and stayed. People who just see, as we were talking about before, that there's opportunity Mm -hmm. in New Orleans. And, you know, there is something of a resentment. Some of it's racial, too, because largely the influx of people are white. There's 100,000 less black residents in New Orleans today than there were right before Katrina. You know, race touches a lot of the story of post-Katrina New Orleans, and it can't help but, but touch this aspect, too. And a big part of the vibrancy
0: of New Orleans that makes it such a
2: beloved city
0: was the African-American culture and the Creole-French culture, all that character. And you said, you know, that the historic city was the high ground. It survived. If you were to visit today, if Michael or I was to go to New Orleans, would we find that vibrancy that we fell in love with pre-Katrina
2: Oh, certainly, certainly, certainly. You know, whether we're talking about the bars and the music, the restaurants, again, I actually think the food and music scene is richer today. Hmm. You know, and there was a a huge effort by nonprofits, by the government, by individuals, to make sure that New Orleans held on to its cultural past. I mean, people got it that, you know, the crown jewel in New Orleans, a tourist city, was its culture, and Mm -hmm. so... There was special efforts made to bring back the musicians, to bring back other cultural ambassadors. That's enlightened by the government, yeah. Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you, guys. I'm talking with Gary Rivlin, and
0: Gary's book is Katrina After the Flood, looking back 10 years after Katrina. As far as tourism goes, of course, we've got the music and the scene that we all think of when we go to New Orleans. There's this whole dimension of Katrina damage tours and so on, people that want to tour the poor neighborhoods and, and learn about the struggles and the progress and the frustrations. Are those still there,
2: and uh, do you think they're healthy, or or do you think there's a problem with those? They're still there. People are very ambivalent in the communities like Lower Ninth Ward, which is, you know, kind of stop number one on these tours. On, On the one hand, the last thing in the world the Lower Ninth wants is for the rest of the country to forget about them. They still have more recovering to do. On the other hand, it did go overboard for a while. It, it got to the point where the city council in New Orleans mm-hmm. had to come up with a rule forbidding mm-hmm. the buses for coming. But I, t- I took one of those tours that
0: actually funded a program in the community, and I felt very good, if I understood it correctly, that I was you know, paying good money for this tour, I was talking to real people, and the money was staying in the community. Do you have any uh, sense of uh, that being a positive thing?
2: I think I know the tour you're talking about, Talc. Um, And they kind of adopted Lower9.org, a a Lower Ninth organization. Yeah, that was it. At first, people were like, yeah, come to our community. And then, like, wait a second, you're getting $50 a head for an hour or two in our community? And, you know, 50 people on a bus, that's (laughs) $2,500. like, what about us? And so some of the, I think, you know, more forward-thinking tour operators realized, like, okay, well, let's give a portion to this community. We're looking at how devastated it is. but. I think people should see it. I think people should mm-hmm. on their own. They have bike tours. They have bus tours. You could drive on your own. I found it fascinating and inspirational. And
0: again, it felt good to know that the money was staying in the community. Do you think Katrina could happen again? Or are the safeguards there? And we've learned a lesson and the levies are really strong.
2: We taxpayers in the U.S. spent $15 billion or so to you know, reinforce and create a more secure flood protection system. And people are Pretty confident that what happened after Katrina can't happen again. The problem is with the coastal wetlands. Mm. Uh, you know they're losing a, like a football field of wetlands. You know every minute, something like that. So you could build these really strong. How levies. are we? How are we losing those wetlands? So the Corps of Army Engineers, when they built the levees, blocked the silt from replenishing mm. the the wetlands. At the same time, oil exploration is going on down there. So between the two of them. In the last 70, 80 years, they've lost an area about the size of Delaware. And the problem from a flood protection point of view is it's the coastal wetlands that stop the storm surge. Mm -hmm. Um, And if there's no wetlands to slow down the surge, the wave that was 25 feet out in the water is going to be 25 feet when it hits New Orleans. So right now it's fine, but unless we do something about coastal degradation, which the politicians are talking about, there's a little bit of funding, but they're not quite there yet. Unless we do something about that, you know, this very expensive system will be obsolete in a decade or two. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're
0: talking with Gary Rivlin, and Gary's new book is Katrina, After the Flood. Imagine that day, August 29, 2005, when Katrina made landfall and uh, most of New Orleans was put underwater. Gary, you've studied this for 10 years. You've written this impressive book. What's the moral? Is there some big lesson for America?
2: Be prepared in advance because they were just figuring out as they were going afterwards. I mean, there has been more attention to resiliency, to how do we prepare when a disaster like this happens? I mean, disasters will happen, but how can we make the recovery period much shorter? You look at Sandy in New York City, it's three years later. Mm-hmm. The lesson is that we, we need to be smarter about recovery. Gary Rivlin, author of Katrina, After the Flood. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Rick. It was great. If you're not from- me hear you scream Hope you're feeling much better now Like my homies feel When you're feeling down and out And you feel there's no way out
0: You get dropped off in New only.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is a production of Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. It's produced by Tim Tappan with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get ongoing website support from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern Graham and tech support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to WLRN Miami and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours a monthly travel newsletter,
4: and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip
0: at ricksteves.com.